Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside Horror Show. We're in Oregon again this week. We are. We're in the Beaver State. The Beaver State. Yes, the Beaver State. That never gets not funny. It's never not funny. I agree with you. I have some great laws. Uh, Take that loosely with a grain of salt. Great laws from the Beaver State from, from Oregon. Um, I think you'll appreciate some of these because some of them are like, okay, that makes sense. Other ones, I'm like, huh, okay. All right. So let's hear these laws. All right. Number one, and this will affect ladies everywhere. Only one person is allowed in the restroom at a time. This is specific to Portland. So it's illegal for more than one person to occupy any restroom that is located in a public building or on public property unless one of the persons is assisting a handicapped person, assisting a child under the age of 12, or an elderly person or somebody else in need of assistance. I'm assuming this means like stalls as well. So if it's like a public restroom with multiple stalls, it's like one person per stall. (laughs) Okay, I'm hoping. I'm hoping it's not like we have 10 stalls, but only one of you can be in here at a time. Because you know that women take notoriously long in the bathroom, especially in public places. Right. And then I like think about like sometimes like being a girl and it's like you go into a bathroom and like the stall doesn't have a lock and you like call your friend in to hold the door closed for you. (laughs) So that's illegal. Unless they're standing outside. In America, it doesn't even matter because half the time the bathroom stall doors, there's like this huge gap where you can just see straight on in. I know. It's like the illusion of privacy. Anyway, it's better than ancient Rome where you just, you know, would sit down right next to somebody and even have a conversation. (laughs) And go in a hole where everything flowed below the city. Yay. So I did find a little background about this one person per restroom. And I guess it was put in place in Portland specifically to curb drug and prostitution activities. Um, the idea that people would be, you know, getting it on or consuming drugs in a closed uh, bathroom stall with each other. So I guess All that right. has a good purpose. I can kind of understand it. But then why wouldn't it be the same for men? Because you said this is specifically women, right? Well, it's anyone. I think specifically okay. it impacts okay. ladies more than men. <laughs> yeah, because they like to take their friends to the bathroom with them. Right, right. <laughs> Um, I mean, you can go shy guy all you want, Eden, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, all right. Number two, this is super unique and I thought this was kind of fascinating. So I included it in the list. Private citizens can issue tickets to traffic officers in Oregon. What? Yep. So check this out. According to the state law in Oregon, a private person, private citizen can issue a ticket in a couple of specific situations. And they can issue them to anybody, including police officers. Wow. Um, Okay. They're called citizen citations. So here's what the law says. Quote, a person other than an enforcement officer may commence a violation proceeding under this section only for voting violations, traffic violations, violations under wildlife laws, and violations under the commercial fishing laws, end quote. Huh, okay. So, I mean, I'd hate to have to deal with a Karen in this state, though. (laughs) Right! (laughs) That's all I can think of. Like, traffic violations? I'm like, there's so many things. Like, could you imagine? Like, I'm sorry, officer, you're parked illegally. (laughs) Like, yeah, that's a very odd law, but it kind of makes me, you know, it's kind of interesting that, like, Oregon has that, because they're like, you know what? It's, It's a big state. People do lots of things. We want to make sure everybody has a piece of the power here. So. Yeah, I mean, I kind of like it. 
but I could also see it going horribly wrong. I know. Talk about like a ridiculous feud with your neighbors escalating over over tickets. Oh, yeah. All right. Now we get into the strange and unusual. Uh, In Oregon, leaving your car door open for long durations can result in a ticket. So this is very weird. So basically, like if you are in your car and you leave your door open or you're improperly operating the opening of your door car door. Um, So, for example, say you park your car and you open the door to the side of the vehicle that's on the traffic side. Or if there's like pedestrians or bicycle lanes and you open your door into the bicycle lane for a certain length of time. And that length of time is considered what's normal to unload or load passengers, you can receive a ticket with a maximum fine of $250. Isn't that crazy? Wow. Okay. I mean, some people need that, honestly, but, um, (laughs) you know, it's still one of those things that, again, is just kind of like, I can see this being so, you know, unnecessary. Yes. Yeah. Like, uh, but I'm like, that's kind of strange, but okay, Oregon. Uh, Speaking of strange... Uh, It's illegal to hang drapes in doorways. Okay. So like if I wanted to make like a nice like curtained off room, I could not. Correct. And this specifically impacts places like hospitals or prisons. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. So they're not allowed to drape like doorways or a door frame. Um, It's intended to to protect somehow patient and inmate safety. Um, and also impacts okay. privacy, of course. And the idea is that it helps, you know, for inmates that, like, you can't, like, cordon it off and, and, you know, something terrible could happen to you behind the curtain or the drape. Um, it seems kind of weird, though, because in a hospital, like, sometimes it's nice to have a drape. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I guess, like, part of the reason that this law was placed onto the books is that there was a spat of fires that resu- that were caused by draped doorways and the drapes would catch fire and then the person was trapped in like the hospital room. Oh my God. Okay. That's horrible. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I guess you have to take action, but also yeah, hmm, this may be over legislated a little bit. Uh, here's a, here's a pretty common sense law, which I'm like, why again, I don't know the history behind this, but I'm sure it happened, but it's illegal to carry a baby on the running board of a vehicle in Oregon. <laughs> Oh, my. Okay. <laughs> Why does this even need to be a law? Yeah, I'm, I I don't know. Um, but this law does include not just the running boards, but the hood, the fender, or any other external part of the motor vehicle when it's on a highway. So I guess it's okay to cruise with your baby on the hood of the car if you're on a street, a surface <laughs> road, but... <laughs> what the hell? I know. Yeah, so if you violate this this law in Oregon, um, you you can receive a maximum penalty of up to $1,000. Oh, my God. Right. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's a lot of odd little, like, uh, traffic laws, especially in Portland. Um, so in Portland, they have this law that says uh, any person who owns or controls a truck or a truck trailer cannot park on the streets in Portland. So oh. if you... Yeah, right. So kind of weird, but it kind of makes sense because of just trying to maintain traffic congestion. But if you have a truck or a, tra- a tractor trailer, you have to complete uh, you have to do off street parking at a, at a facility. Um, so it has to be, you know, 
a parking garage that can accommodate trucks, that sort of thing. Yeah. Which I, I kind of support. I support that because sometimes it's a pain in the ass trying to get around like a parked truck because they're so wide. Yeah, definitely. That's true. Uh, and this next one also is related to traffic safety, I guess. <laughs> this is weird. So in Oregon, vehicles are supposed to yield the right of way to any pedestrian who's standing on a sidewalk. Now that sounds kind of normal, but if you think about it a little bit more in most places, pedestrians should give way to vehicles unless they're in a crosswalk. So basically there's no jaywalking in Oregon. Like if a pedestrian steps off the sidewalk in the middle of the road and starts crossing, if you hit that person, you're in the wrong. Huh? Yeah. Which I guess is kind of good because yeah, I feel like pedestrian traffic deaths are are definitely on the rise, especially since like the pandemic and people kind of forgetting how to drive. So I I support this law, Oregon, and I appreciate your focus on pedestrian safety. All right. And I'll end with one specific ordinance from the town of Yam Hill, Oregon. In Yam Hill, it is illegal to practice quote unquote occult arts. What the fuck? Okay. <laughs> we would both be in trouble, Eden, because yeah. <laughs> cult arts refers to the use or practice of fortune telling, astrology, phrenology, palmistry, clairvoyance, mesmerism, spiritualism, or any other practice or practices generally recognized as unsound and unscientific. All right. Because, <laughs> you know, it's so scientific that, you know, the body and blood of Christ is transformed from bread and wine right exactly and you know praying to you know as they like to call him these days sky daddy sky daddy (laughs) um so i mean it's just like yeah and those aren't you know those are scientifically sound yeah okay yeah Uh, it's a very interesting law it's it's kind of also interesting is that that that's an ordinance and because it's an ordinance it's like an unclassified misdemeanor and it was i didn't really find like anything that would be like the penalty for practicing the quote-unquote occult arts um i'm just assuming if you apply for a business license for your palmistry shop you're going to get shot down in yam hill but that's okay yam hill sounds like a boring place it sounds like a weird place that that name is not great (laughs) (laughs) not great at all um, I did I tell you about the time that I got in trouble for a similar thing? No, what? In Pennsylvania, which there's no laws on the books. Um, so my friend and I were, I think this was like right after high school, um, and we were in a cem not a cemetery. We were in a park. Okay. Um, and we decided to hold a little seance because we'd never done one before. So we're like, all right, let's do a seance. So we were doing a seance and all of a sudden this cop like comes up and he's like, uh, and mind you, the nickname for our state of Pennsylvania is Pencil Tucky. Mm-hmm. Um, so that might clear a few things up here. And he just comes up and he's like, I've gotten some reports of occult activity happening here. And I'm like, what, what occult activity, sir? You know, <laughs> we're just sitting here with some candles. Don't know what you're talking about. You know, it's like, well, they say you were worshiping Satan. <laughs> Don't even believe in him, but okay. Sure. You know, it's like, all right, well, you guys, you know, just to blow those candles out and you get on out of here. 
That's so weird. And I'm like, what? What? Like, really? Okay. Yeah, I feel that that was just like, that's so weird. I feel, yeah, I don't know about that. Definitely not illegal. I think it was more like teenagers loitering in the park. I swear if I knew more about the law back then, I'd be like, my religious freedoms are being violated. Oh, man. And, you know, then they probably would have been like, all right, do whatever you want. Okay, bye. (laughs) Right, right. You're like, don't test me. Well, Eden, I'm I'm sorry that that happened to you, but I'm glad it was just a bit of ridiculous, like, move along here, sirs. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it was nutty. I'm kind of glad it happened just for the story, you know? (laughs) Fair enough. Well, if you're ready, I can dive into my true crime story. I would love to hear about some delicious, delicious, horrible, brutal murder. Great. I'm proud to serve then. All right. So today we're heading to the city of Bend, Oregon. Bend is the largest city in central Oregon, and it's the seat of Deschutes County. It's one of the few cities in Oregon that I've heard of because I've never been to Oregon. Right? I feel like Bend is one of those unusually named cities that when you hear it, it kind of like sticks out in your brain. Also, yeah. too, like South Bend is like another like common name that you hear a lot. And I was like, South Bend? In Bend? But no, it's not. So <laughs> uh, so Bend is located on the eastern edge of the Cascade Range along the Deschutes River. Surprise, surprise. The county's called Deschutes. And this is where the Cascade Range kind of transitions and it has these beautiful ponderosa pine forests that surround Bend, but the area is still considered high desert because of the altitude. So it's kind of dry, and a lot of the the plant life that flourishes there are things like junipers and like sagebrush. Okay. Originally, it was a crossing point on the Deschutes River, and it was called Farewell Bend in the 1800s. The area was settled in the early 1900s to support the logging industry that popped up. The location on the Deschutes River really made Bend the ideal location because it had water to help power the sawmills, and it was so close to very rich forests. Plus, once you cut down the trees and milled them, you could very easily use the river to transport those milled goods. Uh, The city was incorporated in 1905 with a whopping 300 residents. Ooh, big, big town. Big town. Uh, And there was a controversy over the name for the new city. Because the community had been referred to different things throughout the years. Sometimes it was called Deschutes. Other times it was called Stotts after one of the more prominent local early settlers. And it also was known as Farewell Bend because that's what that bend in the river had been known for for a long time. Hmm. So the residents held a vote and the name of Farewell Bend won out. So why do we call the city Bend and not Farewell Bend today? Well... This is the fun fact I have for today's, one of the fun facts I have for today's episode. (laughs) Officials in the post office department in Washington, D.C. decided that Farewell Bend was just too darn long. So they only approved the shortened name of Bend instead. Yay, bureaucracy. Hooray. (laughs) I mean, it makes it easier, I guess. It does. And it's catchier. Those bureaucrats knew what they were doing. For once. <laughs> Today, Bend is home to about 999,000 people, and it covers roughly 35 square miles. 
While logging drove most of its early economy, Bend's top industry now is tourism. This is due to its beautiful location, which has easy access to outdoor recreation like mountain biking, fishing, hiking, camping, rock climbing, of course, whitewater rafting under the chutes. In the wintertime, there's things like skiing. There's a lot of golf courses around Bend, and because of its altitude, it's ideal for paragliding as well. Bend also has a burgeoning art scene, and it's supported by tons of public art displays, which is awesome, art galleries, and other things such as the Bend Film Festival and the Summer Festival, which is the largest art showcase in Central Oregon, where they basically have independent artists and craftspeople come in and display their wares. And they also do fun things like concerts and, and exhibitions of various art forms. That's fun. Okay. And there are three more big notable items about Bend, Oregon, before I get into my story that I'd love to share with you. Number one, Ben gets many visitors who have a hankering for 1990s nostalgia. When they arrive in town, they head to the last blockbuster video store in the world. Oh, wow. Okay, you know what? I think I knew about this blockbuster store. Yeah, it was the focus of a documentary a, f- a few years back. But Yes. Yeah, so that, that might be why it's kind of tickling that little part of your brain that's vaguely remembering it. <laughs> so it's located at the intersection of Route 20 and Revere Avenue. The Blockbuster in Bend, Oregon, was opened by Ken and Debbie Tischer in 1992 as a secondary location of Pacific Video, a small video rental chain that was operating in Oregon at the time. In 2000, the Tischers converted over to a Blockbuster franchise store. When Blockbuster LLC closed all of their corporate-owned stores, which happened in early 2014, it left the Ben location as one of the 50 remaining franchise stores. In July 2018, it became the last remaining Blockbuster in the United States, and in March 2019, the last in the world. It's Notableness as the last operating blockbuster has made a, a pretty popular tourist destination, and the store still stocks new titles. They have around 1,200 titles, and they estimate that there's about 4,000 people who regularly rent movies at the location. Wow. Okay, so I'm going to have to make like the you know four-and-a-half-day drive to go rent a movie. <laughs> By the time you, you get home to watch it, you'll have to return it, Eden. It'll be overdue by then. You have so many late fees. Uh, the store has some really cool pieces of film memorabilia that actually belong to actor Russell Crowe. So he donated his hood from Robin Hood, the robe and shorts that he wore in the boxing movie Cinderella Man, a vest that he wore in Les Miserables, and the director's chair from American Gangster. They were oh, okay. gifted. Yeah. So he gifted them to the last operating uh, Alaskan blockbuster in Anchorage. And then when that closed, they gifted them to the Bend, Oregon store. Okay, ready for number two? I am. I'm always ready for number two, Nicole. (laughs) Well, duly noted. So number two, Bend has more breweries per capita than anywhere else in the U.S. Beer is a really huge part of Bend's culture, and the city is home to 30 breweries and counting. And a number of the breweries are award winners for their beers. Uh, It makes a lot of sense when you think about 
where Ben is located. Uh, it's around ample fresh water from the Deschutes River, and it's an ideal region to grow hops. Oregon is known for the Cascade hops, after all, and Ben definitely is part of that scene. You heard it here first, people. You want to get drunk? Go to Bend, Oregon. <laughs> it's true. Uh, the craft brewing craze started in Bend all the way back in 1988 with Deschutes Brewery. Uh, nowadays, you can find top-notch breweries like Worthy Brewing Company, Silver Moon Brewery, Crux Fermentation Project, Ten Barrel Brewing Company, and Monkless Belgian Ales. And the cool part is, you can visit all of these as part of the Bend Ale Trail. Ooh, I like ale trails. I've never heard of one before, but I'm assuming I like them. <laughs> it's a little bit like a wine trail, but with breweries instead. Uh, the Bend Ale Trail seems pretty damn epic. So they actually have an app for it that you can use as your passport for all the breweries. You can also buy a paper passport for five bucks, or you can just use your phone app. Uh, the app is free. And it's kind of cool because the trail on your phone covers the seven different territories or like neighborhoods in the city. And you can actually win prizes and badges as you visit all the breweries in each territory. So if you're down to clown and you want to walk around Bend, Oregon and drink a lot of beer, the Bend Ale Trail sounds like the thing to do for you. Down to clown, huh? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. We'll go with it. <laughs> And number three, one of Oregon's oldest officially unsolved murder cases happened just outside Ben in 1924. Ooh. I'm happy to present to you today's story, The Lava Lake Murders. Lava Lake Murders? I've never even heard of them. Okay. I know. I had never heard of them either, considering it's such a cool name. <laughs> I'm excited to share it with you. Right? Yeah. So while I mentioned that the case is still officially unsolved, investigators at the time did have quite a bit of circumstantial evidence that pointed to the killer or possible killers. So basically, it's one of those, like, we pretty much know who did it, but we can't do anything about it. Basically, yeah. So let's dig in. Edward Nichols, a 50-year-old Ben resident, got a gig as the caretaker for a cabin owned by a man named Edward Logan. Logan kept five valuable foxes at the cabin and needed someone to stay over the coming winter to care for the animals on the property. This worked out really well for Nichols, who was a trapper by trade and planned to use the additional time at the cabin to collect furs. Not wanting to spend the winter of 1923-24 alone in a remote cabin, Nichols asked two younger men he knew to join him, Roy Wilson and Dewey Morris. Wilson, who was 35, and Dewey, a 25-year-old former Marine, were both loggers by trade, but they were recreational trappers who had worked with Nichols in the past, so they agreed. The men settled into the cabin in the fall of 1923, and as Christmas approached, they amassed their first haul of valuable Martin, Mink, and Fox fur. A week before Christmas, Edward Nichols headed into Ben to sell the furs and purchase additional supplies. By all witness accounts, Nichols was in a jovial mood and said that the trapping was going really well this winter. After Christmas, Alan Wilcoxon, a local resort owner, was traveling by snowshoe from his home in Fall River to his resort at Elk Lake. On January 15, 1924, he stopped at the cabin to visit the three men and spent the evening there. 
according to Wilcoxon, Nichols, Wilson, and Morris were in good spirits and had been very successful in their trapping. On the morning of January 16th, he departed to continue the journey to Elk Lake. This was the last time anyone would see the three men alive again. That's ominous. It is. As spring approached, Dewey Morris's brother, Innes, started to worry. He hadn't heard from his brother since Christmas, and he noticed that the mink traps in the area of the cabin hadn't been emptied or maintained. Innes contacted Pearl Linz, the superintendent of a fish hatchery near the cabin, to see if he had had any contact with the men. Linz confirmed that he hadn't seen the men and had also noticed that none of their traps had been maintained. As the snow melted in April of 1924, Linz and Innes headed out as a search party to the cabin. At the cabin, they discovered that the table was set for a meal, and they found pots on the stove filled with burned food. Whatever had happened had happened suddenly and unexpectedly. Traps, food, winter clothing, and rifles were all found in the cabin. However, there was no sign of a struggle at all. Outside, the search party discovered that the sled the men used to transport their goods and their equipment was missing. Knowing that Nichols was taking care of the cabin and Edward Logan's foxes, the search party headed around to the fox pen behind the cabin. All five of the valuable foxes were missing, and a claw hammer stained with blood was all that was found in the pen. Innes and Linz immediately alerted the Deschutes County Sheriff, Clarence Adams, who came out to the cabin to investigate. As long as it's not Clarence Thomas. <laughs> as a former game warden, Adams was familiar with the area where the cabin was located. So he was able to create a good search pattern, and they quickly found with their expanded search party the men's sled half buried in the snow at Lava Lake. The bottom was stained with something dark. In a patch of snow, they discovered blood, a front tooth, and clumps of hair. Oh. Not too far from the sled lay the expertly skinned bodies of five foxes. Mm. Then, Sheriff Adams noticed that a hole had been cut into the frozen lake and then refrozen. However, there was little they could do in the freezing temperatures that April, and the search was called off until the lake was thawed. After a few days, the temp temperatures rose and the lake was thawed enough to search by boat, and the three men's bodies were discovered in the water, each wrapped in muslin. Oh, wow. Claude McCauley, a freelance writer, described the horrific scene as the bodies were unwrapped from the waterlogged muslin. Quote, Ed Nichols still had his glasses on, the ones he used for reading. A shotgun, fired at close range, had carried away the lower part of his jaw and part of his chest. A watch in his coat pocket had stopped at ten minutes after nine. Roy Wilson's right shoulder had almost completely been shot away by the charge of a shot. There was a bullet behind his right ear. Dewey Morris had been wounded in the left elbow by a charge of a shot, and a hole a little larger than a silver dollar had been crushed through his skull at the back of his right ear, end quote. Autopsies revealed that the men all died of gunshot wounds as well as blunt force trauma, likely from a hammer. Someone really didn't like them. Yes, someone was very angry with them. Wilson had been shot in the right shoulder and the back of the head, while Nichols' jawbone had been shattered by a shotgun blast. 
He also had a bullet hole, likely from a revolver in his head. Morris had been shot in the left forearm and also had a skull fracture, presumably from a hammer. It seemed like the killer definitely wanted to make sure that all three men were dead. Yeah, I mean, multiple like ways of going about it seems they really wanted to get the job done. They did indeed. It was estimated that the murders occurred in early January of 1924. Now, since the weather that long winter had erased a lot of the physical evidence that could connect the murders to a killer, the sheriff's office really started looking at possible suspects among who was in the area at the time. So they focused on other trappers in the area of Lava Lake, as well as questioning the victims' friends and families to see if anybody would want to hurt them. Now, due to the remote location of the cabin and the expertly skinned foxes, they believed that the murderer was likely very familiar with the area and possibly a skilled woodsman or trapper himself. That's what I would think, too. Now, police first turned their attention to a woodsman and moonshiner named Indian Erickson, since he was in the area, camped at nearby Cullis Lake. But Erickson had a solid alibi and was dismissed by the police pretty early in the investigation. I'm sorry, did you say his first name is Indian? Yes, his first name is listed as Indian in the police reports. (laughs) That's really weird. Okay. Uh, When the police talked to Edward Logan, the owner of the cabin, he said that a fellow trapper named Lee Collins, who had at one time quarreled with Edward Nichols over a a reportedly stolen wallet, had come back and threatened to kill Nichols. Friends of Roy Wilson and Dewey Morris mentioned that Nichols' concern over this threat was part of the motivation he had behind asking the young men to join him that winter at the cabin. Police quickly discovered that Lee Collins was a fake name. The suspect's real name was Charles Kimsey, and he had a pretty violent reputation and a criminal history. Kimsey was a felon who had escaped Idaho State Prison, where he was sentenced to 15 years. He was also a skilled outdoorsman, fitting the police's suspected profile of the killer. The police also interviewed a local furrier in Portland who had purchased a sack of unique fox furs from two suspicious men shortly after the murders at Lava Lake. The furrier said that one man had been quiet and taciturn. The other, who was younger, was far more gregarious and friendly. The friendly one had chatted amicably about the trapping and the wilderness, bend and various other things, clearly trying to charm the furrier. The older other man looked a lot like Kimsey, but looking at the mugshot, the furrier couldn't be sure because the man he had seen dropped the furs off and then left and waited outside, saying and doing nothing to call attention to himself. Which in itself kind of draws attention. Yep, yep. Uh, so the police began looking for Charles Kimsey, and they found that he had disappeared after being charged for another attempted murder. He had attempted to murder a stagecoach driver he had hired to drive him back to Idaho. Midway through the journey, Kimsey attacked the driver, tied him up, and then threw him into a well. Luckily, the driver had been able to work his way out of the restraints, climbed out of the well, and then went for help at a nearby home. He was able to identify Kimsey as his attacker, but Kimsey had already continued to flee town and completely disappeared. 
Having lost Kinsey's trail and having no other evidence to track down the other suspect, the chatty young man from the Portland Furrier story, the police were at an impasse and the case went cold. Now, on February 17, 1933, nine years after the murder, Kimsey was spotted in Kalispell, Montana, and apprehended by police. He was returned to Oregon for questioning in the murders. When the sheriff questioned him, he gave an alibi that he was actually in Colorado at the time of the murders, working on the Moffat Tunnel. He claimed to have never heard of the three men or know anything about their deaths. Fortunately for Kimsey, he wasn't able to prove his alibi. But with only circumstantial evidence linking him to the murders, the authorities were not able to press charges. But they still had that stagecoach driver. So the sheriff's office filed charges again, and Kimsey was brought to trial for the attempted murder of the stagecoach driver. He was convicted and sent to the Oregon State Penitentiary and given a life sentence. And let me guess, he escaped again. He didn't. But he did appeal his sentence about, I think I want to say maybe like a decade or so into it, saying that the life sentence for attempted murder was over, over sentencing and that he was being penalized for these Lava Lake murders that he was never officially charged for. And the appellate court agreed with him and he was released. No. Uh, after that, he moved to Montana and apparently led a pretty crime-free life that we know about. But the interesting thing in this case is the other suspect, to me at least. Uh, it seems, and tell me, Eden, if you agree with this, it seems like because the cabin was undisturbed, almost like his accomplice may have lured the, uh, the other men outside the cabin where Kimsey attacked, attacked them and murdered them. That's a good theory. So this is where it gets crazy, right? There's this crime author named Melanie Tupper. And she focuses a lot on just the criminal history of Central Oregon. And she wrote a 2013 book called The Trapper Murders about the Lava Lake murders. And she thinks that she may have identified a reasonable suspect that could have been Kimsey's accomplice. Tupper believes that a man named Ray Van Buren Jackson was Kimsey's partner in the murders. Now, Ray V.B. Jackson was known as Oregon's angel of death. Oh, shit. Uh, okay. Think Jessica Fletcher here. He basically was a witness to a lot of different murders and could have possibly been involved with at least six of them. Damn that Jessica Fletcher. <laughs> so Tupper actually has a whole book about Jackson, and she has gone through the police records tracing Jackson's appearance and witness testimony from 19, from like murders that happened in 1914 all the way through 1938 where he uh in 1938 he killed himself but she found all of these things where this dude ray jackson like pops up um sometimes he's called professor ray jackson because he was a um a schoolhouse teacher uh and he lends his expert witness testimony to a lot of these oddly similar homicides so basically someone would get murdered jackson would be like i kind of know some things that happened because i was adjacent to this murder and then uh, he would share his information with police. And in some of the murders, he was uh, considered a suspect before being dismissed. Uh, even more oddly about Jackson is that none of the murders that he was involved with, or, or sorry, even more oddly, 
none of the murder cases that he was involved with so that he acted as a witness in were ever really solved. So Hmm. it's kind of suspicious. And he was, by all accounts, younger than Kimsey and very gregarious. Uh, The way that Tupper kind of portrays him, he seems he strikes me a little bit as like a sociopath. I could see that. Okay. Uh, Unfortunately, Tupper was not able to uncover any solid evidence that Jackson was involved in the Lava Lake murders. But she did determine that he was acquainted with Kimsey when he was in the area of Bend. So, Eden, thoughts on this old, one of Oregon's oldest unsolved mysteries or unsolved murders, I should say. Well, I find it like super creepy. Definitely. Like, um, I, I mean, the killers were definitely pretty smart with the way that they did everything with, you know, cutting that hole in the ice and then just being like here the bodies are going to be here because even though they had you know the cops had figured that out and were you know going to look there they couldn't until you know much later when everything thawed and then you know by that time a lot of evidence gets removed Mm -hmm. a lot of evidence decays and you can't use it um so i mean that was definitely very interesting um I definitely think these are very good suspects for this murder. It sounds very plausible that they could have, you know, committed these crimes. I, I agree. I think there's pretty compelling evidence, definitely for Kimsey and possibly for Jackson as well. Yeah. I mean, cause I, I do think that he would have needed that accomplice. And plus that guy that got the, you know, furs sold um, to, he said that there were, you know, more people involved. Yeah. Exactly. And I can't help but think, you know, if you're in, in Edward Nichols's shoes and this crazy other crapper like threatens you and you're so concerned about it that you ask some of your buddies to like hang out with you at the cabin, like why would you even go outside or talk to him if he showed up? Yeah. And clearly they weren't attacked in the cabin because there wasn't any sign of of a struggle of a struggle. Yeah. So it, I, I definitely think that there's some some credence to there being an accomplice who may have convinced the men to to. You know, maybe they posed as as a trapper in distress or something like that and lured the men outside the cabin. And then chances are they they could have been murdered one by one or if there's two of them, maybe all, all at once. Yeah. Definitely a very interesting story. Thank you, Nicole. Yeah, you bet. My sources were Wikipedia, visitben.com, benoregon.org, offbeatoregon.com, the Tillamook Headlight Herald, ThatOregonLife.com and HistoricMysteries.com. Awesome. Well, I guess that means that we will take a short break and we will be back with the news and my story. And we're back. And I have quite the news story. Excellent. I'm going to continue with our little Florida man, even though no one requested it this week. But it's from the New York Post, which is always entertaining. And the headline is, Florida man busted after masturbating inside a Miami Beach Starbucks. Oh my. Very Florida man. He really, really loves that Frappuccino. (laughs) Turns him on. A self-proclaimed homeless male model was arrested for masturbating in front of people in a Starbucks in Miami Beach on Friday, according to reports. First of all, there's a lot to unpack within that first little sentence. There is. There is quite a lot to unpack in that first little sentence, friend. 
but I guess we will find out what the hell's going on. Blake Rain, 27, was allegedly seen by several witnesses pleasuring himself at the Starbucks on Collins Avenue and 29th Street around 9.30 a.m. Friday. He likes to, you know, just wake and... I'm trying to think of something that rhymes with wake that is a masturbation reference. (laughs) I was going to say, I'm like, what else do you do with morning wood? (laughs) Witness Alyssa DeMaria said she was in the shop when he used her phone to re- when she used her phone to record him. Okay, I read that completely wrong. I thought he was like, "Can I borrow your phone? I'm going to record myself jacking off." But no. <laughs> she's just like in the shop waiting for her like iced coffee and she's like, "What the fuck?" Yeah, so apparently she whips out her phone and starts recording him. It's probably on Pornhub if you guys want to check it out. Uh, oh my. Uh, what are you fucking doing? Get the fuck out. It's disgusting, she yells at him in the video obtained by Local 10 News. Rain, wearing a white shirt, underpants, and white socks, clearly unbothered, does the gross deed in front of an American flag in the coffee shop while looking around at patrons. So he's just, like, jacking up in front of an American flag and just, like, eyeing up everybody. (laughs) So gross. Oh, yeah, pledging allegiance turns me on. Oh, God. Di Maria said he did it for about 10 minutes before officers finally arrived. At that point, Rain took off running, according to the arrest report. Rain allegedly refused to comply with cops' orders, and they shot him with a dart-firing stun gun. Whoops. That's when he got to yanking again, this time pulling the darts out of his body and running off again. Oh. <laughs> I thought he was like, oh, I love electricity. I know. I was like, oh, like that's this guy needs to stop it. I I get it. That was that was good on, on that reporter's part. Very clever. Very mm-hmm. clever wording. I see what you did there. In the bizarre chase, police shot Rain roughly eight times before he was finally subdued. Police used closed fist distraction blows and kicked him in the lower back area as well, according to the arrest report. Wait, say that again? Closed fist distraction blows. Uh, Yeah, I have no idea. They hit him is basically what it sounds like. Okay. Continue on. One of the officers was injured and he fell during the foot chase. One of the officers was injured after he fell during the foot chase. Miami Fire Rescue personnel took Rain to Mount Sinai Medical Center. He is charged with lewd and lascivious behavior, uh, disorderly conduct in an establishment and resisting an officer without violence. His bond has been set to $700. Records show Rain was at the Turner Guilford Knight Correctional Center on Sunday, Local 10 reported. My goodness. I don't really think they should have, like, beat the shit out of him to the point where he's in the hospital now. Yeah, but he was also, like, crazy resisting and trying to get away, and, like, I don't don't know. He would have probably just gone down the street to the next Starbucks and just jacked off there. Exactly. I mean, I know I get a little turned on by coffee, too, so I don't necessarily blame this man. (laughs) But (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Florida. Florida. Gotta love it. I mean, sure. I guess we have to. We're kind of forced to. We are kind of forced to. It is, it is, you know, America's dong. And we just got to accept that. Oh, Florida. 
All right, so I have a story for you guys this week. It is a little shorter than my usual stories, but since last time's episode was like a million times longer, (laughs) I think we're good. I think it's going to even out. Okay. So my story for this week takes place in Eugene, Oregon. It is in Lane County and was named after Eugene Skinner, who was an early settler in the area. It has a total population of 176,654 people and an area of 44.21 square miles. So already it's vastly different from my story from last time. For sure. Yet again, because this is what I choose all the time, it is the county seat of Lane County (laughs) and the second largest city in the state, Portland being the largest. Famous people from Eugene are, and here you go, you're going to love this, Nicole. Okay. Rose McGowan. Ooh! Frank Black from the Pixies. Steve Perry of Cherry Pop and Daddy's Not Journey. Okay. Courtney Love. Tracy Bonham. Oh my god. And Corinne Tucker of Sleater Kinney. So what I'm discovering is that some of my favorite celebrities slash musicians are from Eugene... Exactly. Yes. I was so surprised. Not all were born here, mind you, but they did at least grow up here for a time because I know all of you know Courtney Love went to school in Olympia. (laughs) And Rose McGowan was born in Florence, Italy, because, you know, her parents were part of the Children of God cult. So, Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot she was a cult member. Yeah, cult cult baby. How wonderful for her. (laughs) I I guess. (laughs) There were honestly a lot more names, but I listed the ones that I knew and found interesting. That's fair. Now, you all know what kind of music I like, you know, from this, obviously, Mm -hmm. uh, if you didn't before. And also that I'm old. Um, The 90s, man. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, I mean, the 90s were fucking long ago now. Um, well, I think it's hilarious that you're like, and my music is from, taste is from the 90s. And I'm like, I was so excited about the blockbuster in Bend, Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. So we're both older than dirt now by today's yeah. standards. Um, as far as things to do in Eugene, you can get some exercise in its natural beauty by hiking or biking. There's also a lot of water here. So you can boat or kayak or canoe. It's not far from the ocean. So you can go to the beach. There's lots of parks, tons of museums and artsy stuff. Pretty much anything you can imagine they would have in a city this size. And Corinne Tucker says it's a hippie town. Okay. So that also sounds fun. Yeah, I'm kind of picturing like a city version of the town from The Goonies. I could see that a little bit. Yeah. What's more fun, though, is the haunted cemetery I have for you this week. Ooh. The Eugene Masonic Cemetery. Masonic. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm into this. The Eugene Masonic Cemetery is the oldest cemetery in the city, uh, being incorporated as a burial site the same year Oregon became a state. Hmm. The man the town is named after, whom I mentioned in my intro, Eugene Skinner, is buried here, and it also houses a the remains of several other prominent people from the town, such as John Whitaker, who was the first governor of Oregon. The interesting thing here is that it doesn't seem like you have to be a mason to be buried here, which is pretty cool. 
Um, and speaking of Freemason stuff, um, there's this really, really beautiful Masonic um, like retirement home uh, that is out somewhere around Hershey-ish. Mm. Forget what town. But my family can apparently go there for free. Because of the Mason connection? Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah. That was going to be one of my questions about about the cemetery. Is like, do you have to have a Mason or a Masonic connection to be buried there? So that's good that anybody, any any Joe Schmo or Jane Schmo can get buried there. Exactly, and there are still plots available. So you know, I would I would get in there now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> although there are a lot of Douglas firs there today. Initially, when the cemetery was built. It was just a bunch of grass with no trees at all. Uh, so just a grassy knoll like the one Kennedy was probably shot from, if you believe in conspiracy theories. Mm. Perfect place for a cemetery, a memorial park. I mean, cemetery. <laughs> exactly. They also planted around 100 native plants in the cemetery, and they do a great job here with upkeep, although they don't cut the grass very often as they want to let all those native plants just grow and flourish. And there are also ground nesting birds here that they don't want to disturb. Wow, that's kind of awesome. Yeah. It is a hippie city, though, so that makes sense. Exactly. All of these changes and the natural beauty of the cemetery weren't really a thing until 1994 when the ownership of the cemetery changed hands between the Freemasons and the current owners, the Eugene Masonic Cemetery Association, or EMCA for short. Before the change, the cemetery proved to be too much for the Masons, and it was overgrown. There were lots of weeds and blackberries taking over, and it also had a major problem with vandalism. Hmm. Once purchased and the EMCA took over, that's when all these changes were made. The people of Eugene, or Eugenians, as they are called. I was going to ask you that, because I, I was like, what do you call some from Eugene. <laughs> yep, Eugenians. Eugenians. And it's spelled Lord. either I-A-N-S or E-A-N-S. You can do whatever you want with it. Nice. I went down a, a path where I'm like, what do you call someone from Pittsburgh? Is it a Pittsburgher? Is it a, is it a Pittsburghian? Pittsburghian. That sounds better. So I like Eugenians. Pittsburghian. It's funny. <laughs> Pittsburgher just sounds like food. Sorry. Sorry to derail. Eugenians. Tell me more about them. Oh, but now I'm curious about Pittsburgh. <laughs> Pittsburghundians. So, yes, yeah, so uh, the people of Eugene, they're called Eugenians. Uh, they really love this place now and are my kind of people because when I say I love to hang out in cemeteries, people look at me like I'm crazy. Um, so the people in this town probably wouldn't think so, though, as people like hanging out here and they say it's peaceful and beautiful. Do you also like hanging out in cemeteries, Nicole? It depends on the cemetery, frankly, because I... I mean, I think I told you before I grew up and our immediate neighbors were cemeteries. So one on either side of the street. Um, gotcha. So, and they had different designs. One was a very modern cemetery and that was not so much fun to hang out in because it was just rows of graves and that's a little depressing. That's boring. But, yeah. Yes. But the other one was an older Mennonite cemetery that was really designed as like a memorial park where you would go and, you know, picnic and spend time with your, your, your deceased relatives. And I love that aesthetic of, of cemetery designs. So I think if you can find a nice memorial style park, um, then yeah, go for it. It's, it's very peaceful and beautiful and it's lovely. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I like the older ones too. There are a lot, they have a lot more personality. 
so this cemetery is also home to a sizable mausoleum called Hope Abbey, which was done in an ancient Egyptian style with a winged scarab above the door. Probably because of its symbolism, it would mean renewal and rebirth to the ancient Egyptians, as far as we know anyway. That sounds super cool. What is the connection between the Freemasons and ancient Egypt, you may ask? Well, Freemasonry is very secretive. I had family in the Masons, and my maternal grandfather was at least 33rd degree, if not farther up, and I believe he ran his lodge. Hmm. Which Nicole would know where this one is, because in Bethlehem, right across the bridge there going over toward um, Fountain Hill, um, that nice, big, beautiful one that's no longer a Masonic lodge, that was his, the one that he ran. Cool. That's ginormous. It's yeah, and it's beautiful. It's freaking beautiful. So, like I said, like my maternal grandfather, you know, pretty big in the Masons. Uh, my maternal grandmother was also an Eastern Star, which is the branch women are allowed into, since the Masons is very much a boys' club. Um, but they do have the Eastern Stars, which is you know male or female. As far as we can tell, it has something to do with. Egyptian mystery schools, which Freemasonry has connection to as more of a modern-day mystery school, dealing with the concealed or hidden parts of God and the parts of God that are within all of us. Ooh, esoteric knowledge. Mm-hmm. My mom said that she would ask her relatives, you know, her parents and other relatives that were in it all the time about Freemasonry, and they would never tell her anything because they're not allowed to. Um, If you want to find out, honey, you just got to come down to the lodge and sign up. And see, that's my thing. Like, I'm I'm tempted because I'm very interested to find out more, but I don't want to sign up for something when I don't even know what it's about. (laughs) So, yeah, that that's my issue there. Um, Yeah. Uh, So I guess it'll have to remain a mystery, but there could be a link to Aleister Crowley, honestly, in there somewhere. Since although a belief in any god can get you into Freemasonry, one thing that I had researched was when they ask you to like pledge your faith uh, to on like one of your holy books, one of the holy books offered to pledge to is the Book of Law, which was written by Aleister Crowley. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. So I own the book myself, but I have not read it yet. And Aleister Crowley is kind of a creepy, pervy douche. Um <laughs> but on a trip to egypt with his wife he said that they were contacted by like an egyptian deity or something along those lines and that inspired the book of law and a lot of his practices which guess what mostly related to sex and masturbation like that guy in florida (laughs) now exactly yes he was just worshiping that's what he was doing and according to our religious freedom rights you should be able to worship in a starbucks if you want to (laughs) So I could go on with the connections between the Masons and Egypt, but it would fill an entire episode, I think. Um, I do invite you guys to do your own research on the subject, though, if you want to know more, because it is pretty cool. And once again, mind you, these are only the parts that are made public. So we don't know, like, everything that goes on in Freemasonry. Getting back to the mausoleum, it houses a lot of notable people from the area and is sometimes open to the public for events like lectures. I tried to find pictures of what it looks like inside, 
but I could not, unfortunately. And it sounds weird to have events in a mausoleum, but I'm I'm down. Yeah, I, I did a quick Google of Hope Abbey, um, and I only found the external pictures. I mean, it looks super dope on the outside, for sure. And I know the inside has marble. But yeah, it's like, no, no, no cameras, no cameras. Yeah, which sucks, because I want to see what it looks like. I guess we'll have to <laughs> go there. They also have live music here from time to time as well. Ooh. And apparently the acoustics with all the marble is really good. So... It became protected by the National Register of Historic Places in 1980. Now, even with how peaceful people say it is here, it should come as little surprise to anyone who knows anything about Freemasonry that this place has some intense spiritual energy, and people have seen and felt things here. Most people who go here at night feel like they're being watched, but it isn't really in a bad way. They say it's more protective of an energy, which is cool. And is that like in the cemetery or just the the Hope Mausoleum or is it like everywhere in the cemetery? I believe this was referring to the cemetery itself. Gotcha. So apparitions can be seen walking on the trails. And one person reported the smell of perfume coming from no source that they could find. Hmm. We see that a lot with the perfume I've noticed. Yeah. Uh, I looked at a few supposed ghost pictures from here but i failed to see any ghosts in them although commenters were saying wow that's the clearest picture of a ghost i've ever seen (laughs) i Uh, love that where did they see it uh uh people said they also captured evp but i heard nothing because i rarely hear anything in evp Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um cold spots and weird lights have been seen There is one photo that I zoomed in on, and I did see something that looks super creepy, which I will send to you now, and you can tell us what you think, Nicole. Okay. So first, I'm going to show, I zoomed in on it for you, so don't bother zooming. I'm going to show you the picture before I zoomed in. So just take a look at that. Don't zoom and see if you see anything. Okay, so it's it's a bunch of the the native high grasses, some some trees. Looks like there's a person wearing a white shirt and black top, off to the right, kind of looking. I mean, I there's it's hard to see anything really. It's like there's the upfront foliage is kind of obscuring the tree. Oh my god! What did you see it now? Yes, opposite on the opposite side of the picture on the left side, there's like. It what looks like tree trunks and a break like through the break in like the bushes is it looks like a little fucking person. All right, I'm gonna look at your zoomed in one. Yes, that's fucking creepy. Yep. So now I'm gonna have to go over like the other pictures that I saw that I didn't see anything in and just zoom in everywhere. I will say though, I don't know. It's hard to tell from an internet picture, but like if I devil's advocate here was going to drop a creepy little thing into a photo, that's exactly where I would drop it. I I can see what you're saying, definitely. But that is, it's scary looking, whatever the hell that is. Yeah, it's super scary looking. It's like almost like a hooded figure or maybe a woman with long hair, but like there's definitely like horns or a creepy V smile. I don't, not a fan either way. Exactly. Yes. I'd rather leave it alone. That woman should get back in her car. She doesn't need to She does not need to visit Nana's grave today. Exactly. So, yeah, besides that photo, um, people say that they um, that there's a ghost of a woman here, but I did not actually find anything about her uh, or what she does. 
I saw one link and then I was like, oh, I'll click on that next. And then it disappeared. So I have no idea who the ghost of this woman is. If you guys know, please write to us. Let us know. You will um, not find out who that woman is. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, so I want to leave you with a quote from a night security guard. Uh, that work there and he says occasionally I'll be walking along daydreaming and see somebody standing in front of me or just off to the side and god I'll look again and they're still there and then I'll look again and gone that kind of stuff is pretty common for me I'll go home and tell my wife hey you know who I saw up there last night yeah so he says that you just you know see shit like that and then eventually it just disappears right in front of you okay so nicole your favorite my absolute favorite so next says ghost children (laughs) no the ghost children are worse definitely laughing crying does not matter um they are scary um there's no ghost children here that i've heard of so we're good good. on that one good so the only thing second to ghost children is fucking people disappearing (laughs) yeah So all in all, this seems like a fun place to visit. And although it was tough to find specifics this week, I did find a lot of people saying that they've either seen or felt something here. So it does seem like there's a pretty good chance that you'll encounter something. Uh, So would you visit this cemetery, Nicole? Oh, my gosh. A hundred percent would. Like, not only does it sound like a really nice cemetery to kind of just walk around and explore. And it would be really cool to be inside the Hope uh, Abbey mausoleum I think that would be super dope especially if they have like a music a music event there lectures yeah. maybe less as awesome but can you imagine how cool it would be like to go to like a music thing in the Hope Abbey and then you kind of you know take the time afterwards just to walk around the, around the cemetery I think that'd be so much fun I'm that'd sign be me amazing up. sign yes. me up so we need to make our way to Oregon I guess and go to this cemetery because I am down so my sources for this week, I don't know why I couldn't think of the word sources, but here we go. They are Wikipedia, theregisterguard.com, dailyemerald.com, onlyinyourstate.com, hauntedplaces.org, gaia.com, nbc16.com, and I believe that's it. Nice. Thanks for that story, Eden. I uh... Absolutely. You know, I do love a good cemetery, John. This one sounds like it's going to be on the road trip list. So, Roadsters, if you have any other, perhaps, road trip cemetery recos for us, feel free to drop us a line. You can do that in a variety of ways. You can always send us an email. We're roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You can also visit our website, roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. Or swing on by any of the social meds. We're on Facebook and Instagram as Roadside Horror Show and on Twitter as Roadside Horror. Although who knows what's happening with Twitter these days. Exactly. Yes, I'm avoiding it like the plague. (laughs) We'd also like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our logo and Emassi for our intro and outro music. Until next time, Roadsters, creep Creep on, on, creeping creeping on. on.